Throughout history, we've always been scared of what we've perceived as evil or bad. Some cultures believe that some malevolent forces can influence their lives. We saw it last episode with possessions and exorcisms, but it doesn't stop there. The case of Clothilde Marchand was a perfect example because, even though her killer, Nancy Bowen, logically knew that Mrs. Marchand, being a white witch who killed her husband, was improbable, it still didn't take much for Lila Jimerson to convince her. We fear that which we do not understand, and as a society, we have a tendency to call it evil. In reality, there are way too many spiritual and religious beliefs to even begin to comprehend the scope of each practice. During season one, we talked about cultures who kept bodies around after they died as a sort of religious rite to the afterlife. If someone did this in America or any Western country, they would end up in prison. But that doesn't make it any less valid. You might be wondering where I'm going with this. In the case of witchcraft, paganism, druidism, or anything of the sort, the treatment of these practitioners was very similar. They were different, and that scared many Christians, Catholics, and Puritans, specifically Puritans. Look at the entire holiday of St. Paddy's Day. It's about a man renamed Patrick and his success in driving the snakes out of Ireland. Those snakes were the pagans and druids. Similar things have happened around the world, and it's important to look at how and why it happened to understand what is and isn't possible when it comes to demonology and, my favorite question, the ability to sell your soul to the devil. Can you really do it? Hey guys, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Haunted Detective Podcast. I'm your favorite host, Kelsey Child, but everyone calls me the paranormal Sherlock Holmes. And I'm your favorite co-host, Pamela J. Hell yeah, you are. Without further ado, let's open the case file today on demonology, the topic of witchcraft. I have a feeling you are excited for this. I love the history of witchcraft. Yeah. It started with my obsession when reading The Crucible in high school. Okay. (laughs) Well, we're not going to begin by talking about witchcraft because this entire episode is really more into fear and what fear makes people do. Because as our oldest listeners know, which is not very old because we started this podcast in September, every sixth episode of our season is on psychology and it's Pamela's episode. So we are mine, mine. We are gearing up to get right into that. A haunted town and a murder that followed? Something strange was happening in the Hammersmith area of London in 1804. Something so bizarre that it had every single resident in a frenzy. Nestled in West London lies a district with a weird history. In 1631, Hammersmith London became an independent parish, with its first parish church opening in the early 1660s. King Charles I and Sir Samuel Moreland were two notable historical figures buried there. In 1745, two men from Scotland, James Lee and Lewis Kennedy, opened the Vineyard Nursery that introduced new plants to the entire area of London, which is a pretty big deal, if you ask me. Yeah, that's a massive deal. They must have been pretty well known. Yes. Overall, the parish had a rich history until the end of 1803, when things took a dark and grisly turn. Seems to be a common theme here. (laughs) I mean, we do have a true crime podcast, so... That is true. That is true. P. 
people started getting attacked by a ghost. No, they didn't. Uh, yes, they did. No, they didn't. Kelsey? Pamela. You want to hear something? Yeah. Ghosts aren't real. They are real. Anyways, we're going to continue on before my feelings get hurt. <laughs> For those in the audience who do believe in the paranormal, yes, you heard me right. Because of the widespread belief that suicide victims were sent to hell, rumors began to run rampant that the ghost was that of a man who had taken his own life by cutting his throat open. This happened the previous year, and apparently he was buried in a local cemetery. The only cemetery in Hammersmith. That's actually so sad. Well, here's the thing. I There's no record if that's real, or if that actually oh, happened. or if that Like a was legend? Like, yeah. It, it seems that way. Gotcha. Like, he in, in, in all the articles and all the reportings, there, he doesn't have a name, you know? That's pretty sus. Just like a man. Yeah. Okay. And for the record, I want to believe in ghosts. Continue. Some people said that he was tall and adorned white robes, while others claimed that he had calfskin garments on and had attributes of a demon with horns and scary eyes. But he seemed to appear at 1 a.m. almost every evening. One thing was for sure though, something invisible was attacking residents. Something invisible, Pamela, was attacking residents. Okay. We don't have to call it a ghost. Just something was, or uh -huh. someone. It got so bad that there was reportedly a wagon driver who took off running when he saw the ghost leaving his 16 passengers and horses behind. Say 16? 16 passengers and his horses and his wagon behind. That's expensive. You don't just leave that. That's a lot to lose. That's like your whole livelihood right there. Yeah. Okay. That's really weird. There are a few famous stories of assault that come from the hauntings. An old woman was walking with a pregnant woman past the church when they were both attacked. The pregnant woman tried to run away, but was caught by the ghost who grabbed and held onto her tightly. Basically like uh, a big hug, a big, tight, aggressive hug. Yeah. Both of them died shortly after, supposedly from shock. The pregnant woman had fainted as soon as it happened and was brought home and later passed away. Another man named Thomas Groom had been attacked while walking through the cemetery one evening. Something grabbed him around the throat and turned him around. He tried punching whoever was there, choking him, but there was no one there. Even so, he felt his fist make contact with someone, like a coat or something solid. Mm -hmm. Imagine just like seeing someone punch air. <laughs> like as hard as they possibly could. So like they like fall forward as they're like punching because it's like their whole body weight behind the punch. Face in the mud. Just like complete. That's like, that's humbling. It is, that's yeah. That's really humbling right there. I would like to say that one of my favorite BuzzFeed Unsolved episodes is the one that covers this. And they did a, Shane and Ryan did a whole reenactment of like, imagine you just, what's that guy doing? No, literally like, that sucks. <laughs> it didn't take long for the sightings to change. Most people reported that the ghost was wearing a white shroud or sheet, like those Scooby-Doo specters. I have that as a tattoo. <laughs> Alexa, play the Scooby-Doo theme song. What's new, Scooby-Doo? We're coming after you. We're gonna solve that mystery.
This made people very suspicious. And on December 29th, 1803, a watchman named William Girdler saw the specter on Beaver Lane. He started running after it and saw whatever or whoever it was throw off the white sheet and vanish. Because of this, the town was split. Some thought it was a ghost, while others started to believe that it was just a man in a white sheet or dressed in all white. With all this going on, the residents stopped leaving their homes at night and everyone was terrified. I mean, that's that's a that's fair. I would also be scared if I found out that something or someone was um, attacking and killing people, either wearing an all white suit or I guess a ghost that's like basically transparent. So I'd be terrified. And also everything's a lot scarier at night. So it's very true. Some townspeople stepped up and decided to start a ghost hunting team. Francis Smith was one of them. He was out there every night with a shotgun looking for the ghost, because that will do a lot against a ghost. Will <laughs> Francis, great ideas, Francis. <laughs> 10 out of 10. E we for effort. We love ancient technology. We love it. E we for effort. It. Yep. So these, good. These hands are rated E for everyone. <laughs> He said, even if you're dead, don't care. Come catch some. On January 3rd, 1804, William Girdler saw Francis out on Beaver Lane. The two men decided to join forces at 11 p.m. But it was at this time that Francis saw Thomas Millwood. He was coming home from visiting his family. Thomas was wearing, and I quote, linen trousers, entirely white, washed very clean, a waistcoat of flannel, apparently new, very white, and an apron which he wore around him, end quote. This is quoted by historicmysteries.com. Basically, he was wearing all white. You're looking very suspicious, young man. Who wears all white? I mean, it's the 1600s. Who knows what people did back then? Like what? Just <laughs> relax. The stains, unimaginable. Calm down. <laughs> If you opened up either of our closets, you would just see like a sea of black clothes. Black so, with like a touch of burgundy somewhere. We can't judge you. Yeah, that's right. I can't. I'm, we've got no leg to stand on. Francis Smith thought that Thomas Millwood was a ghost. So we shot him in the head, successfully killing him. Oh my God. Yep. Mm -hmm. I thought they were going to have like a conversation. I didn't think he was going to do that. Nope. He just raised his gun and just... One off the dude. Okay. Well, that's... It, it, I mean, that's really sad. It, especially if Thomas was just like... Yes. An innocent man? He was. Yeah. It was... All of this happened while Thomas was walking home from visiting his family and his sister heard. It's, some sources say she heard the whole thing. Others say she witnessed the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty damning for Francis Smith. Yeah. Especially if Thomas wasn't, like, opposing a threat to him or anything. Like, geez Louise. We, for those of you who don't know, we live stream uh, part of our episode. One of uh, our moderators, Bacon, just said, Boys, I got the ghost! He has a little more blood than I thought, but we got him! Aww. That makes me feel so sad. It's really sad. People ran outside and were shocked to see Francis standing over a dead body. They urged him to leave, but before he could, a detective came and arrested him. The body was taken to a surgeon who confirmed that Francis had, in fact, murdered him. I'm not sure what other conclusions they were looking to gather from that, but cool. I think it was, I don't, 
Mm. It might have been before they had like corners. Yeah. No, I, yeah, yes. So like, I guess that they took him to somewhere that would be what we would consider like taking them to an autopsy. I guess. That's my, that's my guess. I don't know. The bullet had hit his jaw, gone through his mouth, and collided with his spine. After a damning trial, the jury found Francis Smith guilty of murder, and he was sentenced to hang. Well, I mean, you kind of murdered an innocent man, so... Yeah, it's kind of um, well-deserved. Yeah, I was like, at that point, like, Thomas was just visiting his family, like, and you just fucking killed him for no reason. Yep. Just because he was wearing white. It is, um... Yeah, I I can't complain with the outcome of that trial. Yeah, same. The Hammersmith hauntings were important to discuss because it shows how fear can present and negatively propagate an entire society or community, turning someone you would never suspect into a murderer. Now, in the case of the Salem witch trials, I would not deem many involved as innocent. In fact, I'd say most of them were complacent to a crime committed against the humanity of their time. Between 1692 and 1693, hundreds of people, specifically women, were put on trial for practicing what was assumed to be witchcraft. It was widely believed that the devil would enlist the help of witches, giving them their abilities and power to hurt people. It wasn't until the end of the European witchcraft panic that things ignited in America, specifically in Salem, Massachusetts. Here's the thing. It is not the inherent belief in witchcraft that lit the flame that has become so notorious to this day. It was a conflict going on inside of the town. From a strain on resources to arguments over wealth and newfound controversy over Salem's first minister, Samuel Paris, who was, I'll say it bluntly, a greedy son of a bitch, and some people started questioning him due to his behaviors and rigid rules. That, um, that causes a little something I like to call mob mentality. Oh, Yeah. And as we know, it's deadly. Absolutely it is. But this soon turned into a religious disaster. Part of the Puritan belief system was that arguments and tension like those going on happened because of the devil. Things spiraled in January of 1962 when Samuel Paris's daughter and niece started having some behavioral issues. His daughter Elizabeth, also known as Betty, was nine, and his niece Abigail Williams was 11 when they started throwing tantrums. They would yell, shout, and throw themselves around in ways that seemed much too unnatural for a doctor at the time who said that their sudden rage and behaviors were all due to supernatural influence. Um, probably, I don't really agree with that diagnosis, doctor, but okay. On February 29th, Ann Putnam Jr., who was just 12 years old at the time, also started having mood dysregulation events. These three girls were pressured from judges John Hathorne and Jonathan Corwin to blame their outbursts on three women. And I want to take like a slight pause here because I have a theory that has nothing to do with the paranormal or witchcraft. I think there was something in their food or in their water. Like there was this episode of Ghost Whisperer where the entire town went on like this crazy frenzy witchcraft burning whatever. And it turns out that their bread had this bacteria in it the entire time that made them absolutely apeshit fucking crazy. Really? Yeah. I've never heard that theory. I don't know. That's like a fictional TV show, you know? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, I mean, there's, I've heard weirder things happen. Honestly, I would love to bring up that 
In California, where I lived, there was a town that was literally wiped off the map called Adelaide. Some call it Adelaida because Mercury, it was a Mercury mining community. It got into their water supply and everyone went crazy. The animals, the people, people were like killing themselves, killing each other, eating each other, eating themselves. Like it was just insane. So if that, if that can do something, I'm not saying it caused like hallucinations Mm -hmm. in Salem. I'm saying that these mood dysregulation events from Elizabeth, Abigail, and Anne, it's, it seems far too much of a coincidence to me that these three girls all around the same age started having these dysregulation episodes, you know, these like manic type episodes. There's a lot of different theories when it comes to it. The one that sticks out a lot is that their fathers had a lot of gain by the women that they targeted. Whether it was land, um, money. Um, I know one of them, I, I, feel so bad. I cannot remember her name, but she was one of the first victims of the Salem witch trials, but she had a lot of land and she was recently widowed and she refused to um, either sell the land to, uh, I think it was not maybe Putnam. I can't remember the man's name, but she had a lot of land and she refused to sell it and they had a feud and then she ended up being hung. Well, so there were- But it's a theory. There were three- main women, right? Mm-hmm. Tichuba, a woman brought from the Caribbean to be a slave for the Paris household. Sarah Good, a woman who was homeless. And Sarah Osborne, an old woman who lived in poverty. These were all the women that the girls were pressured to say, you did it. Like, I saw mm-hmm. you in a dream. You are a witch and that's why I'm crazy. Right. Maybe the lack of food resources, scarce resources. They wanted to take down whoever they felt they could. I mean, Salem was far from impoverished at the time. Um, they were they were a small community, you know? So, like, everyone right. knew everyone. Right. Tichuba actually confessed to being a woman of the devil. As quoted by the Smithsonian Magazine, she said while on trial, quote, the devil came to me and bid me serve him, end quote. She also described her interactions with black dogs, an array of other demonic animals like red birds, yellow birds, and a tall, white-haired man. The old man wanted her to sign her name in a book that he had, so she did it happily. Before she was done, she also said that there were other witches implanted in the community trying to damn the Puritans and destroy them. One trial grew into about a mass hysteria, and over the next several months, more and more accusations came to light. One of these accusations was towards Martha Corey, who was a God-fearing woman of the church. This furthered the paranoia, because if she was a witch, then no one was safe. She probably wasn't even a witch. Mm. She was just living. Yep. No, like she literally was not a witch. And the most famous depiction is of her being questioned in a jail cell. And she's like pointing her finger and the way that they drew her is just very offensive. That's fucking heinous. Sarah Good's four-year-old daughter was questioned and understandably because she was fucking four, her answers were lacking conviction and confidence. They took that as a confession to witchcraft. Yeah, because questioning a four-year-old in probably an intimidating fashion might be a little, oh, I don't know, fucking intimidating. Problematic? Yeah. Gross. (sighs) 
By April, they were interrogating dozens of people. On May 27, 1692, Bridget Bishop was questioned, brought before a judge, and sentenced to death. The place that she was hanged would infamously become known as Gallows Hill. Along with Bridget's hearing came the creation of the Special Court of Oyer and Terminer. It was specially created to accuse people of witchcraft. Women, mostly. Great. I know it's a grand understatement, but that's really what they did. Once you were brought before the court, you had little to no chance of survival or deeming of innocence. Yeah, because that's what the fucking court system is supposed to do. The creation of this, I really hesitate every time I say court. Yeah, this wasn't even court. This was just bullshit. And the manners of their convictions concerned some understandably. Specifically, Cotton Mather, a minister who was highly regarded. He wrote them a letter saying that incorporeal evidence, such as visions and dreams, should not be used as real evidence. As you probably guessed, they ignored him. Yeah, because he made too much sense. His son, Increase Mather, who was the president of Harvard at the time, also wished for these hangings to stop being supported by such evidence. Again, as written by the Smithsonian, he said, quote, it were better that 10 suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be condemned, end quote. On October 29th, the court of Oyer and Terminer were destroyed, but a new one popped up in its place. Oh my God. The Superior Court of Judicature. This court agreed with the Mathers and said that evidence had to be more substantial than visions and dreams. Less people were now being sentenced to hang. It was May of 1963 when all charges of witchcraft for the surviving victims were absolved. But so many people had already lost their lives. No less than 25 deaths were caused by this. 19 were hanged, one man was killed by being crushed with stones, one person was tortured until they died, and around five people died due to the unlivable conditions in prison. None of the people who confessed to being witches were actually killed, though. What? For the matter, it was not... Only people. Two dogs in Andover and Salem were killed because they were of the devil. Oh my god, not the puppies, dude. What is that? Like, why? Oh my god, okay. I, like, learning about the Salem witch trials is such a fascinating thing. But just to know how many innocent people died, and then just to find out that they also killed, like, defenseless fucking animals, it's just, it actually makes my blood boil. Because I'm like, you guys are think you're so fucking big and bad. And you think you can control everything that you just, oh, ooh, ooh, pieces of shit. That's all I got to say. Absolutely. It's, it's just, it just makes me so fucking sad. Me too. So the thing is, um, this has to be one of my favorite facts to come out of this era or close to this era. Living beings were not the only ones, things brought before the court, anything they assumed to be with the devil was. And this could include fruits like <laughs> um, tomatoes. Pardon? Back in the 1600s, Europeans didn't really eat tomatoes. They knew they were edible, but they preferred to have them as decorations. But by the end of the 1700s, people began to fear this harmless and rather tasty fruit. They associated its red coloring with death and the devil. They even went as far as to call them poison apples, which was a nod to the apple that Eve ate against God's wishes. Here's the thing, though. Uh, the fruit became a sinful thing to eat because people were dying upon consumption of it. But it was not actually caused by the tomatoes, but the pewter platters they would be served on. 
pewter has insane amounts of lead in it that increase the acidity of tomatoes. So pewter plus lead plus acidic fruits equals death, instant death. So they put tomatoes on trial. Absolutely, they did. Oh my God. I also can't get over the fact that they had them as decor. Oh yeah, I think that's so cute. Do you like my tomato basket? It really brightens up the room. Oh, Monsieur, that's a nice bushel of tomatoes you have there, Monsieur. I want to court your daughter with my bushel of tomatoes. Imagine a guy shows up to take you on a date and he's just holding a bouquet of tomatoes. Uh, Andrew, <laughs> you shouldn't have. William! <laughs> William Francis Smith. Wait, like what's a, I was going to say, what's like a 1600s name? William Francis Billinger, you shouldn't have, you handsome son of a duck, you. <laughs> Bartholomew Miller Hangingham Hammerstein Jr. the fourth. <laughs> you gorgeous being you. Tomatoes from my <laughs> sitting room. Tomatoes. How lovely. Now I can watch the sunset with my tomatoes in hand. That's it. We've completely lost it. <laughs> so this was not in Salem, Massachusetts, but in Salem, New Jersey. In 1820, Colonel Robert Johnson was fed up by the misinformation surrounding tomatoes. So on September 25th, he stood with the courthouse in Salem, New Jersey to his back. And <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you can't even get through it. He ate an entire basket of tomatoes. Shut he the fuck <laughs> up. Are you kidding? <laughs> Why did he eat the whole basket? People were horrified, expecting him <laughs> to... <laughs> oh my God. Expecting him to instantly drop dead. But he didn't. He was fine. This little tangent wasn't exactly relevant, but it's a nice break from the misery and suffering we'll be discussing this episode. He totally threw up. There's no way you eat a whole basket of tomatoes and you're just not nauseous. The acid reflux, dude. <laughs> just ow uh, and there was no Tums back then either you just had heartburn uh, everyone thought it was tuberculosis but it was actually the basket of tomatoes he ate in one sitting or standing shall I say <laughs> damn he didn't even sit to enjoy his meal uh, I, I'm just I'm just picturing a man with like a top hat and like a nice you know coat on he's standing outside of the courthouse he's like hear ye hear ye like just smushing Here. tomatoes into his mouth. Like it's Here. everywhere. <laughs> we find tomatoes not guilty. <laughs> the Satan's fruit to who? Not I. Not I. I, in this demonstration, am already and will <laughs> eat an entire basket of the devil's loin. And nothing. Devil's <laughs> loin. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will happen. Do you think maybe when they ate a bunch of tomatoes and they got heartburn, they thought that it was like, oh my God, my heart's burning because I just ate Satan's fruit. Like it's burning in hell. I just ate Satan's ball sack. I'm going to die. What the fuck? <laughs> if someone ever said that to me, I would leave. <laughs> We're starting to get a better understanding on how fear spreads, much like a virus and infects people. Fear is undeniably like a plague. It's contagious and vicious in its right. During the Hammersmith hauntings, fear took a man's life and turned another into a murderer. The same in 
the Salem witch hunts and all of the witch hunts that happen, and infested the minds of vulnerable and scared men and women, causing them to be easily manipulated to believe that witches were amongst them, cursing their homes and lives and damning them to an eternity in hell. It really is a great study on society, how we can lower our values and morals to such prisons of belief that it would cause death, suffering, and pain. Satanic panic is another example of how fear has once again bested our society and minds. In the 1980s, conspiracy theories about satanic cults ran rampant through America. There was no trust between friends, neighbors, colleagues, or businesses. For all people knew, anyone could have been working with the devil, abusing children, and committing ritualistic murders. The New York Times quotes former FBI agent Ken Lanning, who worked with the Behavioral Science Unit, goals, by the way, as such. Quote, The evidence wasn't there, but the allegations of satanic ritual abuse never really went away. When people get emotionally involved in an issue, common sense and reason go out the window. People believe what they want and need to believe. End quote. To kick this topic off, let's first talk about the Church of Satan or the Satanic Temple and the history of Satanism. And we're going to be talking about one of my favorite things, which is Dante Alighieri went to hell. Ah, yes. In his book series, The Divine Comedy, written in the 14th century, he is led through various trials with his guide Virgil as he wanders seemingly aimlessly through purgatory and the nine circles of hell. I've detailed them out for a better understanding. I'm in all of these. Circle one, limbo. A desperate tear filled with lost souls who are yearning for the warm and not-so-familiar embrace of their god. Here, Dante finds pagans and those who were not baptized. Circle two, lust. The wind is ruthless, constantly blowing and sending its prisoners around for eternity. It's filled with people who could not control their sexual desires. They were adulteresses, as one could call them. Dante sees Cleopatra and Helen of Troy here. Circle three, gluttony. A frozen tundra where all of those who are damned to this round are destined to freeze forever. These are people who lived in unnecessary excess and impulse. They wanted and needed too much. Circle four, greed. A pit of molten gold where people are forced to claw their way out only to be sent right back into the hot metal. Circle five, anger a swampland where those who are sentenced are forced to battle on the river Styx. Circle six, heresy. A flaming landscape where those who reside are said to burn in its pits. Its entrances and exits are guarded by demons. Circle seven, violence. A lake of boiling blood where those who live their lives in a violent manner are said to burn. Circle eight, fraud. A tier of complete darkness where those who are imprisoned are living without light or the ability to see and are constantly tortured by demons. And finally, we have the ninth circle, treachery, the circle where Satan is imprisoned in a thick layer of ice from the waist down. This is his circle, his home. My path will be paved with the sins of man and yours. Dante shall be the bedrock of my return, and all of that is good shall be gone from the universe forever. This is what he says to Dante when they encounter each other. Lovely. Awesome. Great. Yeah, seriously. Because of this series, The Divine Comedies, in the 17th century, people started seeing Satan as an anti-hero, basically. He was morally gray and not entirely evil. All the way through to the end of the 19th century, people fostered this belief. In 1913, Aleister Crowley, an occultist, wrote a poem called A Hymn to Lucifer. And I'm going to read it to you. I'm ready. Where nor of good nor ill, what aim hath act? 
Without its climax, death, what savior hath? Life? An impeccable machine, exact. He paces an inane and pointless path. To glut brute appetites his soul content. How tedious were he fit to comprehend himself more. This our noble element. A fire in nature, love in spirit unkenned. Life hath no spring, no axle, and no end. His body in bloody ruby radiant. With noble passion, sun-souled Lucifer. Swept through the dawn, colossal, swift aslant. On Eden's embassal perimeter, he blessed non-entity with every curse and spiced with sorrow the dull soul of sense, breathed life into the sterile universe with love and knowledge drove out innocence. The key of joy is disobedience. This basically depicts Satan as the onset and leader of an epic rebellion who feeds the soul and the universe. And he really wrote a fan fiction about Satan. Yeah, he sounds like a fan. He's like daddy Satan, ground daddy. I'm number one Bam! Notice me. Due to this, a group in Germany, and I am absolutely going to butcher this name, called the Fraternitas Saturni, was founded in 1926 by Gregor A. Gregorius. A lovely name. He spoke to Satan being a divine and positive idol and wrote the Satan Nietzsche Magi. Grown from these various ideas came the Church of Satan. Between 1957 and 1960, Anton Levy, who was a carnival worker, taught evening classes about the occult. His most dedicated students soon helped in the formation of the Church of Satan on April 30th, 1966. They regarded to Anton as the Black Pope. Oh? Oh, yeah. They would recruit people with fantastical shows, such as something called the Topless Witches Review Nightclub Show. (laughs) Topless Witches Review? Nightclub Show. <laughs> um, so essentially naked girls. Naked, quote, witches? Like okay. swinging their titties around, I guess? I don't know. <laughs> what the hell? I just have like a wild image in my head of like... That title alone gives me a wild image. This show was led by the soon-to-be Manson family cult member Susan Atkins. It was like her whole shebang. In 1969, Anton published the Satanic Bible, which featured topics such as black magic, occult knowledge, secular viewpoints, and the writings were inherently very anti-Bible and anti-Christian. It talked about bodily autonomy and a person's right to it, which went against the church's main value at the time. The church grew in size and it created issues among society's most fearful religious followers, which soon turned to widespread panic and And one could say that Richard Ramirez partially helped to stoke the flames that very quickly became a wildfire. (sighs) Richard fucking Ramirez. Richard fucking Ramirez. That piece of shit. In the summer of 1985, a menacing killer was terrorizing Los Angeles, and I need to issue a very serious content warning here. This is going to be a little heavy, so if you get triggered, probably skip a little bit. Homes would be broken into as nighttime crested the city, and the man of the house would be shot with a 22 caliber handgun. Shortly after, the woman residing in the homes would be raped, stabbed, and mutilated with satanic symbols. At one point, a woman's eye was cut out before a pentagram was carved on her body. A task force was quickly assembled to catch the man now known as the Night Stalker. At this point in August, more than 12 people had been killed. They soon turned their attention to Richard Ramirez, thanks to their new digital database of fingerprints. They ran a partial found at one of the crime scenes and it immediately pinged to Richard. 
a man born in February of 1960 and had a long history of criminal offenses. He was arrested and his trial became a show which many would never forget. Here was a man who would spit and draw pentagrams on his hands, replicate demonic horns with his fingers, and had rotting, sharpened, and missing teeth. He was terrifying. When sentenced to death, he spat at the judge yelling, You make me sick. I will be avenged. Lucifer dwells within all of us. The judge makes him sick? Everyone who was a part of his sentencing. Oh my god. Just for just for listeners' purposes, if you haven't researched in depth into Richard Ramirez and the victims, some of them were children. I mean, like, nine years old. One of the survivors was nine years old. His youngest, I believe, was, like, five to, like, eight years old. So just to be clear, these are all real people. The survivors are still around today, and so are the families. So Richard Ramirez is a fucking asshole. Thank you. There is a reason why we're not going into depth with his case, and a lot of that stems from the popularity he has gained on apps like TikTok and Instagram and people, I guess, standing him and wanting him to be avenged. And it's very disturbing. And we don't we don't like that here. We don't do that. Nope. We are very victim centric. And so we are not going to go we're not going to go way into depth with this case just because the surviving victims and the family members and everyone has just had enough trauma around his quote unquote fans. So it is relevant to the topic. So we'll touch upon it briefly. But if you guys want to know more, I definitely recommend doing your own research for it. Mm -hmm. Accusations started getting thrown around like candy. It was reminiscent of the witch trials in Salem. From murder to heresy and even child rape, no one felt safe. It also did not help that at this time, the Warrens were prevalent figures and benefited from people's fears. Before Ramirez poured the gasoline, the case of the McMartin preschool held the match. In 1983, Judy Johnson, whose son attended the school, accused the teacher, Ray Bucky, of abuse. Her son was painfully constipated, and allegedly the man, who also happened to be the grandson of the school's founder, Virginia, had physically abused him. One thing led to another, and soon abuse allegations turned to rape and molestation accusations. Some sources state that Judy's son had no such sexual experience while others claim otherwise. I would say that the most trustworthy sources say that there was no evidence from her son whatsoever. All in all, the truth is not so clear. Rumors ran rampant and led to assumptions of occult and satanic practices within the school along with bestiality. Ray Bucky supposedly levitated and flew at one point. There was no evidence found to substantiate her claims, though. Like, I don't I don't know how you find evidence that someone, like, flew, but okay. Yeah, I guess unless if it's, like, videotaped. And hundreds of children were examined and questioned by the Children's Institute International, which was an abuse therapy clinic. In 1986, Judy was admitted to a psych ward for paranoid schizophrenia, and the same year she died from excessive alcohol consumption. Oh, my God. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's a... A lot of shit just happened. Very heavy stuff. It all kind of just like spiraled at this time. I don't know. I just. Yeah. There's not much room for breathing with some of these cases. So. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to issue another content warning. In some cases, though, satanic panic actually led to murders being committed in the name of the devil. Most of us probably know the movie Jennifer's Body with Megan Fox. But a lot of people do not know 
that the film is based off of a true story that follows the same themes. Calling to Satan via human sacrifice for instant fame, yeah, you get the drift. This happened, in this case we're going to talk about, happened about 15 to 20 minutes away from where I lived in California. Oh no. Elise Paller was a normal teenage girl living in Arroyo Grande, California. On July 22nd, 1995, at just 15 years old, she vanished without a trace and was reported missing. For eight months, there was no breakthrough in the case and it went cold, until a 17-year-old boy named Royce Casey went to the police and led them to her body. Her remains had been out in a eucalyptus grove for so long that they were partially mummified. The worst part was that she had been killed only a quarter mile away from her house. She was stabbed 12 times. Some of the blows were straight to her neck. She was strangled, raped, and beaten, but none of that killed her. She slowly bled out and was left to die. Uh, Left to die wailing for God and her mother. Oh my God. She had been raped after death as well. The murderers returned her body multiple times to do so. Allegedly. Casey and his two friends, Jacob and Joseph, were arrested for the crime, and it soon came to light that they had a very nefarious and disturbing reason for killing Elise. They wanted their band Hatred to become famous, and in the name of the band Slayer and Satan, they decided to sacrifice a virgin. And they picked Elise specifically because she was the perfect model. She was had blonde hair, blue eyes, and was a virgin. An interesting little tidbit is that after the trial, her family sued the band Slayer. I don't, I don't blame them for doing that, if I'm being totally honest, because in, in their mind, nothing is going to bring her back. And Yeah, absolutely. The amount of rage that they were probably experiencing, because there was no reason for her to die. And there was no reason for any of those horrible things to happen to her. I'm not, I'm not even lying. When you were telling me the details, I was like tearing up over here because that's just so scary and just brutal that someone could do that to somebody else. You know, they recounted so nonchalantly. I'm like, yeah, she was screaming for her mommy. Like she was yelling. And it's like it's some people really are just born evil. And I know that that's counterintuitive and it's not the belief of a lot of psychological professionals out there, but I just, you don't just, a lot of people experience trauma. A lot of people go through horrendous, horrific things in their lives. Like the girl we talked about who survived the Slenderman stabbings, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't turn into this. Yeah. Just because you went through something, it doesn't give you an excuse to hurt others. Absolutely. I'm not saying that these boys even did go through anything because I don't know. Right, I, right. quite frankly, don't care to talk about their stories because they don't deserve to even have their last names said. Yeah, honestly, these guys are like, they're monsters. That is, that is evil. That is pure evil. The case of Jeanette de Palma is heart-wrenching and all too similar to Elisa's. The cause of fear and satanic rumors creating an identity and means for people who wanted to terrorize the public through murder and crime. Jeanette grew up in a religious family in New Jersey and four days before her disappearance, she turned 16. On August 7th, she was taking a train to hang out at her friend's house but never arrived. Her parents reported her missing but it took over a month for her body to be found. On September 16, 1972, someone was walking their dog when the canine returned to its owner with a human arm in its mouth. The police were called and with the help of bloodhounds, Jeanette's fate was revealed. There's a place in the town of Springfield, New Jersey called Devil's Teeth. 
It's a part of a larger area known as the Hoodale Quarry. There was her body, face down with wooden crosses all around her and other pieces of wood to shape a coffin, along with pentagrams and other satanic items inside the two-dimensional coffin. Her body was in a terrible state, and it took them pulling dental records for her to be identified. All of this happened as the masses were swelling with fear, ready to pop into the hysteria of satanic panic. One could argue that it only worsened what was yet to come. Police were very convinced that her murder was satanic and ritualistic. You see, there was a trail system nearby called the Wachong Reservation. This is where the local pagans would go to worship their faith. This was such a red flag at the time that the cops brought in a witch to help them with their investigation. And then in October of the same year, a reverend named James Tate said, as quoted by the dedicated All That's Interesting article, that, quote, devil's disciples, end quote, killed her. Quote, she was so religious that she would often talk to her friends and acquaintances about God. Their fanaticism arose and they killed her, end quote. Like once again, someone who didn't deserve anything bad to happen to him. It's just fucked. Well, I will say, in reality, the satanic hoo-ha that spread about her case was just that, theory. Jeanette was a recovering drug addict, and it is widely believed that she overdosed with her friends who panicked and tried to hide her body. Another theory is that she was just in the right place at the wrong time, and that the man who killed Mary Ann Pryor and Lorraine Kelly got Jeanette too. Oh, man. Throughout this era, it was very common for people to excuse murder with accusations of possession. He was taken over by a demon. He isn't responsible. You know, that whole shebang. Mm-hmm. We briefly touched upon this phenomena in the last episode with the Conjuring Universe case. The devil made me do it. But there are a lot of similar ones out there that were exacerbated by the fear of God and the devil. These situations are still happening and some stories are as recent as the 21st century. So let's talk about one. Pyrechurm, a grandfather, was 65 years old when he was attacked. On February 24th, 2015, Pyre caught 17-year-old Tommy Smith trying to steal his Range Rover. Tommy was no stranger to the law and the punishments that accompanied breaking it. He already had a long rap sheet of 57 crimes. Why would you try and steal a Range Rover? Tommy pulled out a knife when Pyre tried to stop him and stabbed the man in the head, back, neck, chest, and arms. The attack was so vicious that the large 8-inch knife broke in half. It didn't take long for the police to figure out who assaulted Pyre Cherm. And I say assaulted because he actually survived. I'm so glad he survived. I mean, I'm I, that's horribly fucked that that even happened to him. Like, I'm glad that he's around. He has grandkids and he was trying to enjoy his life. And that's just like fucked that that even happened to him. And when Tommy was brought before the court, he claimed he wasn't responsible for what he had done. There was a demon inhabiting his body. And even though the judge and jury did not believe the story, it just further convinced them of a previous diagnosis he had of paranoid schizophrenia. Tommy was sent to a psychiatric hospital for this foreseeable future. And quite honestly, that pisses me off because he just, they just should have been sent to jail. I know that there's a lot of procedures that take place, but when someone says that they are possessed by a demon and that's why they viciously attack someone, even though they were just trying to steal a Range Rover, um... I kind of think they're just trying to get out of it. Like, yeah, that's absolutely. that's all I got for that one. I just think they don't want to go to jail. They'd rather go anywhere else but jail. And 
This really segues us into what we're going to be talking about next episode very well. There's a lot to it when it comes to demonology. And I know we talked in depth this season about possession and selling your soul and all of this stuff, but we have to talk about the psychological and societal component too, because demon possession is actually a diagnosis, according to PubMed and the National Institute of Mental Health and Health. And I just, there's something to it. And whether or not these diagnoses prove that something paranormal is going on or prove how malleable our minds are and how malleable society is, it's going to be important to talk about. So next episode, Pamela is going to be going heavy into psychology, heavy into sociology, and all of her favorite topics. So don't forget to stay tuned next week. Remember, we post our episodes bright and early at midnight as soon as the clock strikes. Throw those fucking glass slippers off, run to your phone or your computer or your TV, wherever you listen, and turn on our podcast. Thank you. Midnight. Woo, woo, woo. Thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to leave us a nice review. Follow us on Instagram, haunted.detective, and on there, you can find me and Pamela's personal pages as well. And on TikTok, haunted underscore detective. We love you. We love you. <laughs> we are going to close the case file on demonology and witchcraft for today, but see you next time.